his body. And he shall be girded with the linen sash and attired with the linen turban. These are the holy garments. And then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. For he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. On the east side, also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. Then you shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord, and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times, and cleanse it. And from the impurities of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place, and the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire, 
Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. And we are learning to say, even as the psalmist, that we love your law. But we want to grow in our love for your word even more. And even for these obscure texts, at least obscure to us, in Leviticus. And I pray that you would help us to see your glory in them. And that you would cause our hearts to understand the, the horror of sin as well as the greatness of your glory, particularly as it is seen in the face of Christ. And so, Spirit, I particularly ask that you would help us now to understand and to help us to worship you through your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you could go back to any point in your life and just press restart, when would that be? I know for myself, I could probably think of multiple times that I would just love to have over. Make a different choice. In fact, this is one of the appeals of video games because you could be playing the game and your character dies, but you get to restart at the beginning of the level. And so even though you fail, there's always a restart. And you can always eventually conquer. The Day of Atonement, the subject of Leviticus chapter 16, really serves as a restart for all of the people of Israel. For after this day, every Israelite would walk away spiritually clean and renewed. Again, if Leviticus is seen as the center of the Pentateuch, maybe the mountain of the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. Chapter 16 is the pinnacle of that mountain. Like This is the very height of the law. This is the very thing that the whole law centers around. Because it addresses how a defiled people can actually dwell in the presence of a holy God. As we saw last week, it demonstrated that defilement is going to happen. In 11 through 15, defilement is going to take place because it's part of just the natural functioning of our bodies 
It's, it's going to happen when we sin. It's going to happen when we get diseases. We as fallen people are defiled. And because of that, we can't be in the presence of a holy God. And so it begs the question, how can that happen? How can a defiled people be renewed? How can you remove defilement? How can sin be washed away? And how can the tide of sin be stopped in its place? Well, this, of course, is the subject of chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. And verse 1, as you see, really sets the scene for us again. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. So this brings us back again to Leviticus 10, when Nadab and Abihu offered up strange fire before the Lord. And on account of that, they defiled God's presence. And so they were consumed. But upon dying as well, they defiled the tabernacle with their dead bodies. So not only are God's people defiled by their action, but God's place is defiled as well. And so verse 1 in effect shouts out, how can God's people and God's place become clean again? Now what do we do? And the verses that follow answer that question. They tell us that God's people can have their defilement removed if they follow the proper procedure, sorry, the proper approach to God, the proper procedure for cleansing God's place, the proper procedure for cleansing God's people, and if they follow the proper observance of God's holy day. Let's look first at the proper approach to God. The text notes that the proper approach to God really consists of three things. Coming at a proper time, offering up proper offerings, and wearing proper clothing. And note that God first warns of the need to enter at the proper time. Verse 2, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die. So the high priest is the only one who would be allowed to enter the holy place or the holy of holies. And he would only be allowed to enter that place just one time during the year on this day. If anyone else or if he at any other time entered the holy place, death would result. And note why. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The cloud that's referenced here is, is the cloud that would be created by the incense that the priest would bring in. And it would create a cloud that would actually shield the priest from beholding the direct presence of the glory of the Lord. And so in, in effect it was creating a mini Mount Sinai. So just as the cloud descended upon Mount Sinai... And the glory of the Lord showed upon it. This incense created a similar feature so that the people would be shielded, the high priest would be shielded from the glory of God. An entrance could only be attained after the high priest made the proper offerings. And there were two really, two proper offerings that the high priest would give. And one was a burnt offering and the other was a sin offering. 
And these were needed for two groups of people. A sin and a burnt offering needed to be offered up for Aaron and his household. It happens to be for his household because the high priesthood was a um, something down from father to son. It was hereditary. So he needed to offer it up on behalf of him and his household. And there was also a sin and a burnt offering to be offered up on behalf of the congregation of Israel. So two for each. And in order to make these offerings, the high priest also needed to be properly clothed. And what's really interesting about this is he wasn't supposed to wear the normal high priestly garments that are described, the ornate garments that indicated that he was the high priest that had the Urim and Thummim and the, and the different stones representing the tribes of Israel. No, instead he was actually supposed to wear just simple linen garments. And the simplicity of the dress may be to present the high priest as a, with an attitude of humility before God. One commentator noted, the lavish clothes made him look like a ruler, like someone in authority. But now in the presence of God, he was stripped of all honor. He was in his proper place. A simple man before a holy God. So God provides a means for cleansing from the defilement of sin. But for that means to take place, for that defilement to be removed, the high priest needs to uh, follow the proper procedures. He has to have the proper approach to God. And what this section teaches is that we can't come to God on our terms. We can only approach God on His terms. That's the point of this whole section. And this was true in the Old Testament. We see it in the stories of Cain and Abel, first of all. When Cain did not offer up the right offering, God was displeased with it. We also see it in the Tower of Babel. People wanted to approach God on their terms, so they built a tower. And that's what led to the cursing of the nations and the development of different languages. And of course, of Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10. Because God is holy, and because man is defiled by sin, we can only approach him on his terms or we will be destroyed. And in Leviticus, only the high priest could gain access to God. And he could only do that on the Day of Atonement. Only him. And only on this day. But the gospel teaches that Christ has provided such a great salvation for us that all men can gain access to God. And not only that, permanent access all the time throughout eternity. Let that sink into you. In Leviticus, it was great news. This was the pinnacle of the Pentateuch that a high priest could actually come into the presence of God and not be killed if he followed the right procedure. One man, one time a year. Christ says, all men, permanently, because of my sacrifice. Romans 5, 2, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have 
obtained access by faith. Now just imagine that you were granted, just plain old you, you were granted access to top secret government documents. Whatever document you wanted to know about in the United States government. The NSA would give you complete access to know whatever you wanted to know about any president, about any special operations overseas, about whatever black ops that we've been involved in. Every file on the FBI. Intelligence reports on every country and ruler. Imagine that you, just plain old you, were given that access at any time, whenever you wanted. How cool would that be? To know what's going on. Brothers and sisters, how much greater that we have permanent access to God now and into eternity. What Christ has given us, it's astonishing. Especially in light of Leviticus 16. Jesus declared in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That access, as great as it is, can only happen through Christ, though. Just as only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, access for us can only happen through Christ. And therefore, this means that all the other religions in the world, and throughout history, are frauds. None of those religions can gain access to God. They will all fail. Because access can only come through Christ. Because Christ alone is God. Only He fulfilled the law. Only He can provide forgiveness and washing and cleansing from defilement. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son of God has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. If you don't have Christ, you will not see life, and the wrath of God remains. It doesn't matter how devoted you are to your religion. Access to God can happen only through Christ and through Him alone. These are God's terms. We can only come to God by faith, through grace, in Christ. And next we're given the proper procedure for cleansing God's place. You will recall that it was not only Nadab and Abihu who were defiled through their error, but it was God's place. The tabernacle that had been established as, again, a mini Mount Sinai that people could have God dwell in their midst. And all of a sudden it was defiled. The sin had not only corrupted their own hearts, but Nadab and Abihu's sin had brought defilement on all these things around them, the holy place. Now, when a toddler in a nursery, let's say, gets sick, like something with a cold, a runny nose, they go into the nursery and they start touching their nose and touching all the toys, 
It won't take long for that disease to spread. And after a while, all the kids have it, and all the nursery workers have it, and now all the families have it, and all the preschoolers at their school have it. Right? It just spreads. Because that's how illness works. And sin spreads just like such an illness. It doesn't just stay contained. It doesn't just corrupt our hearts. It corrupts things around us as well. And so these holy things needed to be cleansed from the defilement of sin. And the text identifies three things that need to be cleansed. The holy place, the tabernacle, and the altar. In order to cleanse the holy place, though, Aaron actually had to first cleanse himself. And so he offers up a sin offering again for he and his household. And then he would burn incense again, and that incense would create a veil so that he could behold God's glory while he entered the veil. And if he didn't, of course, he would die. Note verse 13. That, that incense veil was necessary for his protection. And while he was in the Holy of Holies, he would take some of the, the blood for the sin offering and he would sprinkle it upon the lid of the ark, which is often called the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle it first on the east side of the ark. And then he would sprinkle some on the front of the ark, and he'd do that seven times. And the east side was significant. See, the east, especially in the Pentateuch, that, that, that word, it was it was always eastward that man was driven after they defiled God's presence. Adam and Eve were driven, east, driven eastward from God's presence. They were east of Eden, right? And then it was on the plains of Shinar, they went east. And after every major conflict and rebellion against God, man would travel further and further east as a, as a symbol of their growing distance between God's holy place, God, and man. And so what this is signaling is that that eastward advance is now being halted, being stopped. Man, because of what God is doing on the Day of Atonement, man can finally return to God. And the fact that blood was sprinkled seven times in front of the mercy seat is also significant. Because the the number seven is symbolic, as we know, of God's creative work. It was in seven days that God created the world, the cosmos. And so what God is doing here is He's recreating. And since He's recreating the holy place a new Mount Sinai, a new Eden. But he's also recreating man's relationship with him. Everything is being made new here, particularly the holy place and the tabernacle. And the third thing that needed to be cleansed, of course, is the altar. And just like the other items, it is also cleansed using the blood of the sin, of the sin offering. Why these items? Well, these are the items that have been defiled through Nadab and Abihu's sin. And the reason for this deep cleansing of blood is highlighted in verse 16. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgression in regard to all their sins. 
And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Verse 19. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it, and from the impurities of the sons of Israel consecrate it. You see that emphasis? Impurities, transgressions. What this teaches us is that sin corrupts places, not just hearts. That is, sin is not just simply an issue of morality. It's not just a description or a label that we use to describe bad things people do. Sin, in reality, is a force of destruction. It defiles. It destroys. It doesn't just corrupt our consciences, but it can corrupt our homes. It corrupts our workplaces. In fact, it's corrupted the whole of the cosmos. Maybe one of the most obvious effects of sin we see is every year in the coming of winter, death comes to the world. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. This is why disease and defilement and death exist. Right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's what sin does. This is what sin does. Not just Adam's sin. This is what our sins do. It doesn't just corrupt us. It doesn't just hurt our hearts. It doesn't just hurt our feelings. Sin is a force of destruction that corrupts places as well. As Adam and Eve learned in the garden, saying yes to sin is saying yes to destruction and death. That is exactly what's taking place. When you are tempted by sin, you're saying yes to destruction. Sure, I'll take a little destruction into my family. I'll I'll take a little destruction into my marriage. I'm sure I can handle it. That's what's going on with temptation. Of course, that's not what it looks like. I mean, really, you can imagine every temptation as the green, sorry, the grim reaper knocking on your door. Little Christian, little Christian, let me in. Let me in. But of course, sin doesn't come to your door dressed in black robes with a huge sickle and a creepy smile on its face. Appears like a sexy woman. Or like an offer you just can't refuse. Or maybe it's just like a friend. Asking, hey, want to have a little fun? The problem is that we don't, that when we do let sin in, we don't often see its effects until months down the road, maybe even years. That death, that destruction, that chaos, that mayhem, that broken relationship, you know what, you want to know what the problem is? Sin. Sin does. We've already looked at the proper approach to God and the proper procedure for cleansing God's place. Now let's look at the proper procedure for cleansing God's people. 
After the three sacred items are cleansed, the high priest can now move on to the removal ceremony. And this is described in verses 21 to 22. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. It's the three Hebrew words for sin there, by the way. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities into a solitary land. And he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So what this ceremony conveys is really simple. All of the sins of each individual Israelite and as the whole congregation, all of those sins are now gone. They've been removed. They are out of the camp. Everyone stands clean. They're clean. As that goat leaves, there goes the sin. Except, of course, for the two men, the one who led the goat out into the wilderness, the one who removes the remains of the offerings. They aren't considered fully clean until they bathe. But after they bathe, they too. And again, clearly the point of this section is that God's people need atonement too. Not just God's place, but each individual Israelite. In fact, each individual human needs atonement for their sin they need cleansing and that's what the day of atonement accomplishes but there's a catch the day of atonement doesn't have a permanent effect the moment a person gets a skin disease the moment they have some sort of discharge the moment they sin They're back where they started. They're unclean. They're defiled. They cannot be in the presence of God. Until the next day of atonement. There was no means to prevent people from sinning again or getting defiled again. The law couldn't do that. The law couldn't change the heart. It could provide a ceremony that showed people that there was a temporary means of cleansing But the Levitical law offered no permanent hope. And that's why the author of the book of Hebrews says what he says in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So as great as the Day of Atonement was, and as great as what God was accomplishing here in having a Many Eden, a mini Mount Sinai, a means where God's people could draw close to him again. As wonderful and as exciting as that was for Israel and as refreshing. It was still imperfect. Vastly imperfect to deal with the ultimate need. Something greater was needed. 
Jesus. That's why Jesus came. Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies may be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, Catch this. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We have an amazing Savior. When a person comes to Christ, no more cleansing is necessary because the cleansing is permanent. And one cannot improve upon the work that Christ has accomplished. Faith, just faith, faith in Him is enough to completely purify a person from the defilement of their sin. Just faith. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And Christ ultimately was the Day of Atonement. Christ was the Day of Atonement infinitum. Christ accomplished an unending, unceasing, unstopping, unbreaking Day of Atonement. If the Day of Atonement was the pinnacle of the Pentateuch again, and if it was the greatest day in the whole Hebrew year, then Christ's work on the cross was without question the greatest moment of all time. For on that day, Christ provided cleansing and forgiveness for all time for everyone who would believe in him. And the, ver- and the, the proof is seen in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. One time. Amazing. Which brings us to the final point. Proper observance of God's holy day. The day of atonement had to again be observed at the proper time, which was again on the seventh month of the tenth day. And just let this sink in on you. This was so cool. I discovered this a week ago and immediately had to text Jason. I knew he'd be interested in this. I wanted to know when the Day of Atonement was this year. Yom Kippur. So I, I actually understand it now. So I, I looked it up somehow and found out it was last Wednesday. So I could look forward to it. I'm like, we're having lamb for dinner tonight, this Wednesday, kids. And we did. It was great. Celebrate. We spent time confessing. It was a good, good day. But just imagine that. Chris and I did not plan Leviticus to land when it did. We didn't plan this week to preach on the Day of Atonement. It's a providence. And I honestly believe that's because somebody here, maybe all of us, but maybe even somebody in particular, 
needs to understand this message. I believe God is about doing powerful things. And he can arrange a whole preaching series to draw our attention to this day of days that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. In fact, God declared to the people that it had to be a permanent statute. The high priest could only enter on this day, the tenth day of the seventh month, not one day earlier, not one day later, and of course no other person. And in verse 31, God declares that it has to be a day of solemn rest. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's, this is to be a Shabbat of Shabbats. A Sabbath of Sabbaths. And this means that the Israelites were to cease from all work and they were to set their minds on the significance of this day. And they are to rest so that they can have the proper attitude. Really what God is doing here is he's instructing them how to get the most out of what's being accomplished on the Day of Atonement. He's telling them. He's teaching them. He's pleading with them. This is how, this is how to get the most out of this great holiday. And notice what he says. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, verse 31, that you may humble your souls. It's a permanent statute. The aim of the rest was to cultivate the right attitude. Humility. If you have the English Standard Version, it says, this is a day to afflict yourselves. I think that gets at the right idea. The Israelites needed to recognize the full significance of the day. They needed to recognize the very reality of their sin. They needed to recognize what their sin resulted in. They needed to know the weight of their sin and the consequences of the sin. They needed to afflict themselves. You might be thinking, I thought this was supposed to be a day of joy. I mean, this is the day. This is the day when all of the sin gets removed. Why ruin this great, wonderful day of cleansing with Beating of the chest and mourning and humbling and afflicting ourselves. Why would you do that? Why would God want to, them to afflict themselves? Well, the reason is because each individual needed to realize their own personal culpability for their sin. And their guilt before a holy God. Because until they understood their own individual personal guilt their own personal condemnation, they would never appreciate what the Day of Atonement was seeking to teach. They couldn't. And what this teaches us is that God's people need to be aware of their need for forgiveness and for confession. We need to confess and we need to grieve our sin. And that's, that's why James says what he does in 4.8. Actually, check this out. James 4.8. And if you, if you pay attention to what James says here, it sounds very similar to what God says in Leviticus 16. James 4.8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And He will exalt you. The New Covenant text. This principle applies today. Of course, a Christian should never doubt the work of Christ and His permanent forgiveness. That's not what this is suggesting. And saying, humble yourselves, grieve your sins. James isn't saying uh, that Christ's work isn't sufficient and somehow in confessing you've got to earn it back. That's heresy. All it's simply saying is we still need to have the right response to sin. We still need to recognize what our sin does. That it doesn't just give us a guilty conscience. It corrupts us. It brings destruction upon us. It brings destruction into our families, into our workplaces. It destroys things. And he's saying, recognize that. Recognize why the world is so screwed up. And recognize your part in it. Not just your husband's part, not just your wife's part, not just your kid's part, not just your boss's part. Recognize your part. Fully. And if we consider what David says in Psalm 32, it is through acknowledgement and confession of sin that we actually find genuine joy. And this, is, this has been the experience of Christians throughout history. The great English pastor, Charles Simeon, wrote, after having been a Christian 40 years, there are but two objects that I've ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness, and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I've always thought that they should be viewed together, just as Aaron confessed all the sins of Israel while he put them on the head of the scapegoat. The disease did not keep him from applying to the remedy, nor did the remedy keep him from feeling the disease. By this I seek to be not only humble and thankful, but humbled in thankfulness. Before my God and Savior continually. William Cooper, great hymn writer who wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood. One of, the, one of my favorite hymns. That's why we sing it so much. The man battled with depression almost his entire life. Severely. In fact, he was, it was while he was admitted into an insane, insane, insane asylum that he came across Romans 3.25 which says, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the permission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And this is what he says right after he read that verse while in an insane asylum because he wanted to kill himself over his grief, over his sin. He declares, immediately I received the strength to believe it and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made. My pardon sealed in his blood and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. 
I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with awe and wonder. And that reminds me of what Martin Luther said while he was a monk trying to find some means of forgiveness. He said, if I could find some way to be made righteous with God, I would stand on my head for joy. That was the means of the Reformation. A correct and accurate understanding of his culpability for God, coupled with the greatest news in all the world. Nothing would stop that man from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with the entire world, even if it cost goods and kindred in this mortal life. David Brainerd, famous missionary of the Indians, Jonathan Edwards was so impressed by him, wrote his biography. He writes again and again as he was in the wilderness, grieved deeply over his sin, over his lack of love for God and his lack of love for the people he was ministering to. He writes at one time, When I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of Him the more insatiable, and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. You see, an honest understanding of our sin, coupled with an accurate understanding of what Christ has accomplished in the gospel, is the formula for true and lasting joy. Do you seek joy today? Would you say that you have joy? This is how it's found. But it starts with understanding how desperate you are for Christ. And the reason for this is that confession of sin rightly identifies the problem. Again, we're the problem. It's our sin. It's our guilt. Our choices. Our greatest problem is us. And I understand this is totally counterintuitive in our culture. That, that, that encourages having a victim mentality. And you know why it does that? Because if it's always somebody else's fault, it's never your fault. And therefore, you, got, you, can't, you won't confess. And you can't confess somebody else's sin. So as long as we're just focused on all the ways that we have been wronged, all the ways we've been hurt, and let's be honest, we have been. We are victims. But we're also victimizers. You've sinned. You have let destruction come into other people's lives. And so I'm not surprised that so many Christians today struggle with feeling joy. Because they've never been taught that they should actually grieve over their sin. And in fact, that, that it's through grief, it's through confession, it's through being honest with their sin that actually leads to joy. We're so good at grieving over the sins of others, but we're not as good as grieving over our own sin. And just ask yourself, the last time you had a conflict with your wife, Were you thankful when she pointed out your error? Were you more angry at what you did 
been how she offended me. We have to fight for this, brothers and sisters. But when we rightly identify that our sin is our greatest threat, we can truly understand the riches that Christ has given us on the cross. One final man to mention, John Newton, my favorite pastor. John Piper calls him the happiest pastor that ever lived. But John Newton described himself this way late in life. You've heard it before. He says, although my memory is fading, these two things I remember. That I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. And this is ultimately what the Day of Atonement was seeking to teach God's people. That because they were such great sinners, they needed an even greater Savior than what even the Day of Atonement provided. For Christ alone is the only way that we can approach God. Every person, all time. And He alone has the power to fully cleanse this world from all of its sin and death and destruction. Christ alone can permanently cleanse us so that we can go forth and sin no more. And Christ alone can turn our mourning into dancing. Pray. Father, I just want to pray immediately right now, as it's on my heart. If there is if there's anyone in this room who has never experienced the joy that you accomplish through Christ, pray that you would open their eyes to behold with faith for the first time both their great need and the amazing cleansing, the amazing relationship, the permanent access that Christ has bought for us. Lord, I pray that you would renew our own awareness. That we would have a proper response to our sin. That we would see it as it actually is. That we would recognize its effects even if they're not immediately apparent. That we might halt from our sinful behavior. And that when we do sin, we would grieve it and mourn it like we should. That we would not become hard-hearted. That we would never say it's not a big deal. God, that we would rightly respond. We don't want to involve ourselves in the things that you died for. Pray that you would increase our joy as you increase our humility. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What well, is the very... A very easy thing to do to transition 